0: We're going to be using aliases on this job. Under no circumstances, do I want any one of you to relate to each other by your Christian names. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, where you might have done time, or a bank maybe you robbed in say, Petersburg. what well, I want you guys to talk about, if you have to, is what you're gonna do. That should do it. Hear your names. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Pink.
1: Why am I Mr. Pink?
2: What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rock Strikes 10 and CNJRadio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artists in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels, or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to
3: Rock
1: Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. Okay, it is now that time. It's part 8 of the top 80 albums of 1992, which means we are in to the top 10 albums of 1992. I hope you are well excited for it. If you've been listening to these as they've come out, you're basically marathoning the show this week, and I appreciate you especially have the utmost friggin' happy holidays. Let's get into it right here. Coming in at number 10, I have talked about nostalgia a lot on this episode because, you know, any countdown based on a previous year is dealing in nostalgia, and we do it a lot here on these podcasts. But I will say, nostalgia-wise, I remember specifically, and I wrote a goddamn article for my junior high newspaper, which I never did before, but I did it once in this instance. I got an article in there doing my top 10 albums of 1992, actually. And I had a little rant at the top of it, which got heavily edited, but what have you. I'm really going to try to dig this article up. I know I have it somewhere, so I'll find it. Don't worry. But I did my top albums of 1992. And I do remember specifically, I think pretty much all the albums that you've heard throughout this countdown were still on that list. But this was my number one album at the time. Why? Because it was my favorite band in the world at the time. So it makes sense, right? And once again, talking about not having every album ever that year, you play it a lot. So it becomes a favorite record in that sense. And I definitely loved this record a lot more in 1992 But some of the shine has fallen off of it. So I'm basically trying to say that an album that was my favorite in 1992, I like it still well enough and I still have a great enough memory of it to where it lands here at number 10, which is not a bad thing. So as I talk about this album, I'll do a little pause and then you can say, because it's Kiss. So yes, this album came out on May 19th, 1992, Kiss's 16th studio album, produced, of course, by the great Bob Ezrin. The album is Revenge. Now, obviously, not a lyrical high-water mark in any way. Pause. And not a critical darling in any way. Pause. And not coming from any kind of progressive dialogue. Pause. (laughs) Lament. Lament. But yes, I still do love a lot about the Revenge album because of the times. And man, just, I've talked about this a lot. It was not my fault. I didn't see this tour. I wish I could have seen this tour. Had they continued on and done one more leg at the top of 1993, I would have seen this tour because Dallas would have been the first show on that itinerary. I have been confirmed this fact. But yes, once again, Revenge... This brought back Bob Azrin to the fold, of course, after The Elder. I won't do too much behind the music on this. An important piece of note that Vinnie Vincent gets brought back into the fold just to write songs. And that would pay off in a sense. Probably not the headache they wanted still down the road, but the fact that the first two singles off the record were Vinnie co-writes with Gene and Paul respectively, I think it proved to be probably a decent idea at the time. So Vinnie co-wrote, The opening song, he co-wrote I Just Wanna and Heart of Chrome. Interesting piece of note here, a couple of Bob Ezrin associations in a sense. Talk about the Alice Cooper association when you're dealing with Bob. Two Alice Cooper references to be made on Revenge, if you didn't know this. Kane Roberts, on-again, off-again guitar player for Alice apparently, who was back this year, actually co-wrote Take It Off with Paul Stanley and Bob Ezrin. And the actual guitar solo on the Power Ballad, Every Time I Look at You, was played by Dick Wagner. So a lot of Alice Cooper, Bob Ezrin, some Rock Strikes 10 references in here for you. So yeah, still a lot to love about Revenge. I was super tempted to just go with Spit. Spit has kind of always been my favorite song on the record. And I know there's some Kiss fans that hate this song, but I think it's awesome. What do you want? pause (laughs) but let's go with this one since we're kicking off the show here and kicking off the top 10 let's go with the opening track i mean yeah it's obvious but here's the deal they don't play it live anymore and it's not on every best of so i think it's appropriate it's one of the biggest songs in my world for 1992 so let's go with it kicking off the show here today here's kiss getting a lot of teeth back with this song right here This is unholy. kicking off the show here today and kicking off the top 10 overall here of the top 80 albums of 1992 that was kiss the revenge album of course and that was the opening track unholy written by gene simmons and vinnie vincent what a badass guitar solo right there by bruce kulik this is bruce Kulick's shining hour for sure i just i i loved this album before it ever even came out because I I don't know if I've anticipated an album more in my life than Revenge. So there's a lot of that in there for sure. Uh, but yeah, there you have it. And uh, speaking of Alice Cooper, and there's actually a little bit of a tie-in here on this next album. So really the only conversation I ever had with Eric Singer, who was new to Kiss at that point, he was the new drummer in the band. I failed to mention that. I just assume that everybody knows this stuff. But yeah, not everybody's like a super-duper third-degree black belt KISS nerd like I am. But yes, Eric Singer, who had previously played with Alice Cooper, joined KISS full-time for Revenge for the album and the tour, and he plays on most of the album. But since he had just done a stint in Alice Cooper's band, he actually got in the thank-you notes on this next album right here. Now, this is not an Alice record, of course, because he didn't have anything out in 92. But it was the debut album for this new band called Widowmaker, And Widowmaker was fronted and, of course, led by one of my all-time favorite frontmen and singers of all time, Mr. D. Snyder. D., very smart, bringing in some killer players for this album. And the lead guitarist being Al Petrelli, who had just done a couple of tours for Alice Cooper. And Eric Singer is thanked in the liner notes for this record, and he's referred to as Eric Himmler Singer. And the only conversation I ever had with Eric, I asked him about that, and he just kind of blew it off a little bit without any context and said, Oh, that was just a, a nickname that Al came up with when I was in Alice Cooper. So I'm like, what does that mean? You were like a dictator or something? Or you would just murder people? Like, I need to know these things. But I, I still don't know to this day. Maybe someday I'll get the answer to that question. I'll hit up Al Patrelli for that. Because obviously Eric's l- he's he's pretty busy okay but yes this album here widowmaker their debut album blood and bullets they would only put out two records but they're both freaking monsters just great example of heavy metal right here and unfortunately obviously like there's definitely a lot of explanation as to why this record did not do well Uh, the only thing d could do at all to promote this record was go on howard stern as often as he could and other than that, it's not like he was on a big label anymore. I was, I'm looking at the CD here, and because I, I have it, I bought it on tape and CD, and Al autographed my tape at the time, which is nice of him. But yeah, it was on a label called Esquire Records. <laughs> So it's obviously an independent label with some decent distribution. I did see this in stores, but yeah, like I said, nobody bought it. The album cover is kind of weird, so it's just, I don't know. But it came out on July 28th of 1992, produced by a guy named Rick Wake. Not to be confused with Rick Wakeman, because it's R-I-C and just Wake. So I definitely had to click on that link, because I was like, I've never heard this name before, and I'm a music nerd, so what else did this guy produce? Well... Widowmaker is pretty much one of the only hard rock things that he had any kind of hand in producing. You click on his name and all you're going to see is a producer and engineer of Celine and Mariah and Whitney and Taylor. Taylor Dane, not Taylor Swift. What decade are we in here? J-Lo, you know, people like that. So, yeah, interesting that this guy made a really killer sounding heavy metal record. But I guess that's proof positive. If you're a good producer, you can produce anybody. But yeah, man, if you've never heard this record, Blood and Bullets by Widowmaker, you are missing out, especially if you're any kind of fan of heavy metal or even Twisted Sister or D. Snyder. I know that at the time, D. wasn't really super complimentary about the whole Twisted Sister thing. I remember him saying constantly that this band is twisted with talent, and that's definitely a dig, unfortunately. But In a sense, uh, definitely you could tell that the playing's definitely leaning on the more virtuosic side of things. Got Joe Franco returning from the last lineup of Twisted Sister. He actually played drums on Love Is For Suckers. And looking at the liner notes here, another guy, I think Tony Harnell from TNT, who did background vocals, I believe, on Love Is For Suckers, does backgrounds on this. And the other guys that get background vocal credits are Joe Lynn Turner and uh, two guys from Danger Danger, Bruno Revell and Steve West so there you go that's some fun you can have with the cd booklet still nowadays i'm a big believer in it but yes i've talked enough about this record let's get into it you should check it out and listen to it of course at full volume to get you enticed to track this one down because it's hard to find here's the kickoff track right here and it's one word am <laughs> Am I right there by Widowmaker from Blood and Bullets, their debut album, one of their two albums? And that song was actually co written by D and this guy, Bernie Torme, who's been associated with Ozzy and some other cool people like that. So he was in basically the Desperado project with D, which never happened. The album never came out. It was supposed to be his true first post Twisted Sister thing but ultimately it did not come out. I think about three or four songs from that project while I'm getting used on this record, which makes sense. And I still need to track that down. I've never been able to find that record physically or even illegally. So if anybody out there has it or has a line on it, please, please let me know. Okay, moving over here to album number eight. This band right here, I would definitely say that they're equal parts Van Halen and equal parts Queen in their fandom and just the way that they sound. I would say this album is Van Hagar Meets Queen, and that's not being disparaging in any way. But this album came out on September 22nd of 1992, and easily enough, it was this band's third album, because the album is called Three Sides to Every Story. Of course, talking about Extreme, this album far and away, I believe, to be so much better than Extreme 2 Graffiti. It's It just is. I think the songs are better. The performances are better. Everything about this band evolved past that second album. And I would even argue that I think I might even love the album after this even more. But Three Sides to Every Story, probably their artistic triumph. It's definitely them at their artistic peak. And going for the big, over-the-top artistic follow-up. This is the artistic follow-up, as they say in the biz. Once you sell a few million and you just make that record that is... That's the stamp you're trying to put on, like, this is who we really are kind of thing. And they they still sold a decent amount of records. I don't think they sold as many. But much like Skid Row with Slave to the Grind, I th- would definitely trade a few sales for some respectability. And they gained my respect on this album for sure. Now, this album was co-produced by Bob St. John and Nuno Bentoncourt, the lead guitarist. So this album has always officially existed with the song Don't Leave Me Alone on it, which that was only on the tape and the initial vinyl pressings which are hard to find anyway so the album actually clocks in at over 80 minutes so that's not fitting on a cd or at least not anything they're willing to admit so that song was left off the initial release so yeah this is a long album it's 80 minutes long and it's basically broken down into three different thoughts uh it's what is it called yours mine and the truth yeah that's the subtitle of the record i almost forgot that for a second Uh, but yes yours uh, the first act is the hard rock heavier songs mine is a little more laid back Uh, that's definitely the section more for the people that are most familiar with more than words or wholehearted and there's some killer songs on there like tragic comic for instance and stop the world those are great songs but i am going to go with this one right here from act number three called the truth i think this is their highest artistic achievement and it still has a lot of good rock and roll in it. I think this is probably Gary Sharon's best vocal overall on any album. So, how could I not go with it? So, from Three Sides to Every Story by Extreme, this is Am I Ever Gonna Change? Right extreme right there with Am I Ever Gonna Change? Coming in at number eight here on the top eighty of nineteen ninety-two. Album number seven right here is an album that I've actually owned it pretty early on in its run back in the day. And I've always appreciated just how cool this album sounds. Like it just it's produced so well. This is the guy that produced it, his name is John Purdell. I've heard that name before. I'm not sure where but I'll get into that later. This band right here, this is a one-off. It's a one and done. Might be one of the all-time great one and dones ever, for my money. This band right here, Life, Sex, and Death. It's almost called The Silent Majority. And it services a lot of different styles, but it's not too schizophrenic. But I think the other thing that really weighs heavily on it is the what is this is this a bit what is this is the fact that they're they always maintained that their lead singer stanley was legitimately homeless and what a presence this guy was on stage he just uh he, he wore like a tattered suit and just kind of flailed around like a madman and i've seen some youtube clips now of people like uploading home video footage of them playing live it's like man what an experience that must have been But yeah, cool band. This guy, Alex Kane, uh, the main guy in the band, the guitar player, wrote a lot of the stuff, from what I understand, along with some of the rest of the band. But uh, he's still active to this day. Alex Kane's still gig, so that's really cool and nice enough guy. I've chatted with him a couple of times online. Man, once again, if you like heavy metal or hard alternative or whatever, this is definitely a record for you. Everything has just turned up to 10 on this record, and even the thing with Stanley being a weird vocalist in a sense, and definitely an offbeat frontman, you gotta check out some of the pop element on this record, and I mean that. So this song will give you a sense of something different, but when the chorus kicks in, well, you'll know what I'm talking about. Judge for yourself. This one's called Fuckin shit some "Fucking
3: Shit Ass." fucking shit. Some fucking shit and ass. Some fucking shit.
1: According to Alex Kane from Life, Sex, and Death, I heard on an interview a few years ago that that part at the beginning with Stanley making noise with all these different pieces of metal, apparently that was recorded, I think, in a shack uh, by the house they were staying in. <laughs> so a lot of interesting background on this record, but I recommend going and do a deep dive on all things surrounding this record. Silent Majority by Life, Sex, and Death. There's so many other songs on that record I love, like you know, Whole Asshole and Tank and stuff like that, so it's a really, really fucking cool rock album. Go check it out. And number six on my list here, proving that I don't do a lot of things very conventionally, is an album that barely got a release in 1992. Very limited, and in subsequent reissues, it was more widely available, and really never available commercially in the U.S. ever to this day, but... I'm a big freaking fan of Michael Monroe. Obviously, he's one of my favorites. One of the other great frontmen of all time. He's definitely on my Mount Rushmore with D. Snyder and a couple of other people. But yeah, Michael Monroe. He had this record that was coming out in 1992. It was actually under a band name this time called Jerusalem Slim. So what happened was he actually wanted to keep calling the band that he had formed at this point Michael Monroe. So he was still using Sammy Yaffa from Hanoi Rocks. But then all of a sudden he's doing a collaboration with Steve Stevens, who just got done playing with Billy Idol. And so the band was renamed Jerusalem Slim. And apparently, according to Michael, I just read this crazy interview that he did where he just buried this record. So Michael's not a fan of it, but I think it's one of those things uh, people like Ozzy have talked about this. If I'm not having fun, then the record blows. So they really can't divorce themselves from the music and what the mood was when they were recording it a lot of times. And he says that's absolutely a true thing. So Michael does not like this record, but I like it a lot. So it's it's on my list here at number six. So sorry, Michael. But this album was definitely doomed. Apparently Michael just fought every decision all, all the way through. He said in the interview he wanted Little Steven to produce it because he had just done the Demolition 23 project with him, and he worked on not faking it with him, so he's like, I want Steven. And the label said that he had to use Michael Wagner because Michael Wagner was a hot producer at that point. So it definitely makes it a different kind of sound and mix for what I'm used to with Michael, but it still didn't deter my enjoyment of it, so once again, I think I'm one of the bigger fans of this record, and not most of any of the people involved with it are. But hey, that's what happens sometimes, you know, and does lead into that weird thing that for the second time in his life, Vince Neil negatively affected the life of Michael Monroe, but it sounded like he was happy to get out of this band situation anyway and go back to doing his solo stuff. But, you know, he's like, before I knew it, Steve Stevens was doing a record with Vince Neil. <laughs> so yeah, Wow. But I I don't know how easy it is to track down this record anymore. I literally had to get Chris, when he was living in Japan, to buy me a CD copy of this so I could finally own it. That's how hard it is to come by. So, good luck to you out there if you want to get it. I think me and maybe Gary Rothwell, the only two people in America that own this album, probably physically on CD. Because we love Michael Monroe. Okay, so. All that being said, I'm going to play you something off of the one and done self titled album from Jerusalem Slim. This song is called Gotta Get a Hold. Once again I gotta reiterate, even if Michael doesn't like that record, I think he sounds great on it, but it's kinda proof. He sounds great on anything, doesn't he? Yeah, sounds Michael Monroe along with Steve Stevens and Sammy Yaffa. That was the Jerusalem Slim Band from the album of the same name, and that was it for them. Coming in at number five is this one right here. This is one of the I mean, this whole top five is definitely nineteen ninety two personified. i Played you a couple of obscure faves, but I think you're going to know all these records from here on out. With this bad boy right here, cracking the top five, this album came out on July 14th, 1992, co-produced by HypoLuxa and Hermit Pan. Is ministry, with by far my favorite album of all time by them, Psalm 69, subtitled The Way to Succeed and The Way to Suck Eggs. So man, I just remember hearing Jesus built my hot rod and being like, wow, that is a rock and roll song and a half. And that was actually put out as a single prior to this album coming out. It wound up being put on Psalm 69 as well, albeit in an edited form, which I definitely prefer the eight minute version versus the five minute version, but that's just me. But this is a damn near flawless album. And I will say full confession, every album here in the top five, Did not score a perfect 100 points. There is no technical perfect album for me here in 1992. But all of these albums here in the top, I think, six or seven only have like one so-so song on it. So in good conscience, I can't say that it's a perfect album. But all these are just damn near perfect. And you definitely must own them all. But yeah, Psalm 69... Uh, If you were a fan of the early, like, Danceteria-sounding stuff, like the Depeche Mode-type stuff that they were doing early on, this record was not for you, bringing in all the heavy electric guitars and all the live drums and definitely paralleling uh, in the direction that Nine Inch Nails was going as well. I know Al and Trent were big friends at the time and did that offshoot band together, A Thousand Homo DJs. Uh, But yeah, man, this album is just heavy. It's apocalyptic heavy. I gotta say, go listen to this album if you've never heard it. It is something else. And you may have heard this one, but I like this one as a representation of the record, and I never get sick of it. So here you go, and I'm sure the song is about heroin, but it's still awesome. This is Just One Fix. And I do remember seeing in the video for Just One Fix, and apparently he did actually use it to record the album. The reason the rhythm guitar sounds so good on that track is because he used a knife as his Iceman. Fun fact. But yes, that was Ministry with Just One Fix from Psalm 69, The Way to Succeed and The Way to Suck Eggs. You have to say it that way because otherwise you, you miss the joke. You miss the pun. You miss the play on words. And at number four here is Bar None, easily the most controversial record of 1992. I've talked about this record a lot on a few different episodes and then played songs from it before. It is the self-titled record from Body Count. Now, I remember when this album came out, it came out and it flopped. I do remember seeing There Goes the Neighborhood on Headbanger's Ball and I was like, this is fucking awesome. And the album was not reviewed well, and it didn't sell well, and the album had pretty much died by the summer. And then all of a sudden, somebody had a problem with it because of the song Cop Killer. It got banned, or they tried to ban it at least. I, I, I definitely give it up for Warner for standing by Body Count and Ice-T throughout the controversy. And then at the end of the day, Ice claims that they pulled it just to be done with it. So... They did give in, but the label didn't. So much respect. I understand, man. Ice T was probably under all the pressure in the world, and I'm sure at the end of the day, it's like that. Nah, nah, that shit ain't worth it. But it left a mark on pop culture in the year 1992. And I just, i just keep going back to the fact: all they had to do was not say anything. All that the people that had a problem with it, just all they had to do was let the record die. And they didn't. It wound up selling a ton of records and the fact when the announcement was made that the track was being pulled and then all the copies that actually had Cop Killer on it, they all disappeared from the stores. And to this day, you can find almost every single second-hand and specialty record store, even if they don't carry CDs, they probably have a copy of that CD and they're going to want to sell it to you for about a hundred bucks. So yeah, an important record, but... It also rocks like hell. The whole narrative. People that was like, oh, rap, band, Body Count. There's no rap on this record. The only thing it has to do with rap is the fact that Ice-T is the lead singer of Body Count. Yes, he does talk sing most of the songs, but he actually sings on a couple too. Like, The Winner Loses is a good example of that. But, yeah, it's just a hardcore metal hybrid, and it definitely gives you a sense of danger and... Like, this is completely rebellious, and it just gets all of those senses going. It deals with a lot of taboos, it deals with a lot of things that aren't very progressive, but much like a gore album, and I know Ice is a big gore fan, I think that was some of the influence here on this record, there's a lot of reality in it too, besides the fantasy. So that's what makes it a really cool, unique record in that sense for me over the years I've analyzed it that way but once again you don't need to totally overanalyze these things at the end of the day you just put it on the stereo and crank it the fuck up and that's why I'm choosing this song right here so if it's been a minute for you and body count then you need to get back in properly with the song that started it all for me there goes the neighborhood I still remember the shock that came across my brain when I first heard the actual album in its original form, non-edited. And what I mean by that is the talking about when I saw the video for There Goes the Neighborhood, which is a cool looking video, by the way, when I saw that on Headbangers Ball, the lyrics were just a little bit different. (laughs) So that first verse hits you right over the head. You know what he said at the top of that song. But on the MTV version, it was, here come them black boys with the fancy cars and the rock guitars and all that stuff. I was like, that's not what he said in the video. I was like, holy shit, this is a different thing altogether. But yes, still rocks. There goes the neighborhood. And I, I can brag, I've actually seen Body Count live. And I hope to do it again sometime in the very near future. They don't play a ton of shows, but I believe they have a new record coming out very soon. So looking forward to that and with that we get into the top three these top three and i'm going to be quite honest you probably hear me say this on quite a few countdowns but we're in this level here of the countdown honestly this top three they could have been in any particular order any one of these albums could have been number one and with the exception of revenge by kiss i don't think i've listened to any albums more on this countdown than these three particular albums so these are as of today, my three favorite albums of 1992, but I did try to put them in an order that I'm feeling as of basically this week. So, coming in at number three right here, fittingly, is this band's third full-length album, and uh, let's let's open the book here. So, I was a big fan of this band, from the word go, at least as far as their major label debut. I, I of course, was not aware of them really early on, but once they put out their first record, it was off to the races. I was the biggest fan, and I will still maintain that I am a number one in the top one percenters of being such a fan of their second album. So when this band's third album came out, I was ready for it, I was happy that it came out. It sounded great. I thought it was a nice follow-up to their second album because I knew they had to make some changes because the second album flopped so hard. I am talking about the Beastie Boys right here and the album Check Your Head. This album came out on April 21st of 1992, produced by Mario Caldado Jr., a.k.a. Mario C. And I've said this a few times for a few different bands on this countdown. This was the record that they had to make. And it doesn't mean it's a compromise in any way, because it sounds like a very super honest record. There's a lot of wow moments on this. Not just pow, but wow. And letting the world know something that they knew all along and their old school friends knew all along, that those guys could play some damn instruments. And had done that before. They used to be a hardcore punk band. Oh, Now we're figuring all this out. My God, I just thought they did Cookie Puss and She's on it, and then they put out Licensed Deal. No, they had a whole other thing going before all that. Before they had the tracksuits and the the gold chains and and Rick Rubin and all that stuff, they were a hardcore punk rock band. There are songs that completely just call back to that on here. This is a very schizophrenic record, but somehow, and sequencing matters, it does. It all seems to make sense in the end. Instrumentals, hip-hop jams... Hardcore punk. It's all here. And it's on Check Your Head by the Beastie Boys. So if someone comes up to me and says, this is my favorite Beastie Boys album, like, yeah, I get it. I'm a Paul's Boutique guy, but I freaking love Check Your Head. And kind of much like the Body Count record, when this album came out, it was a flop. It did not sell. It was not even critically received. I could pull articles from magazines that I still own saying, eh, it's okay. It's not that great. C-minus. I've seen those reviews. They existed. Now, of course, they all love it. It's Sort of like Rolling Stone with Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. This album was not a seller when it came out. I specifically remember seeing the video for Pass the Mic on Yo! MTV Raps because it was not getting played during the day. MTV was not supporting this at all. So the first single came out. It flopped. And it says here in the order that Jimmy James was the third single, but I think it might have been the second. I I don't know. I feel like that's wrong, but what I do know is that it seemed like forever, and this album wasn't taken off, and then all of a sudden, So What You Want came out, and then slowly but surely, MTV started playing it, and then all of a sudden, oh, whoa, yeah, we like the Beastie Boys again now. Okay, well, thanks. Where were you guys in 1989? Yeah, I'm going on a whole thing with this, but I feel very justified because I was right all along. I never fell off. I, I did this, okay? (laughs) No, but yeah, check your head, great. Uh, Getting the 30th anniversary it deserved this year on vinyl and CD, and even some of those bonus tracks are great. Uh, Remixes that I actually do like. So that's how good this record is. always tempted to go with my absolute favorite song on this record, Professor Booty, because... It's the n threes thing. It's everybody gets a solo verse and it's some of their best rhyming ever. And just from a pure production standpoint, like past the mic, man, that thing is a burner. That is easily in the top five Beastie Boys songs of all time. I could play any of those things. Jimmy James is fun, of course. So what you want is absolutely undeniable. But I'm going to go with this one right here. This was actually released as a single. It was the fourth single released for the album. And they even made a video for it. Really stylish video too, by the way. They finally got a few bucks because the, the other ones were definitely made on the cheap. But this kind of shows off the fact, hey, they're also playing rock and roll. They're also playing heavy. It's not even like a punk song, this song. It's just a heavy, hard rock alternative type song. So it's interesting. And I figured let's play this to represent Checkerhead, just because, yeah, it's a rock and roll show and I don't mind playing hip hop at all but let's go with this one right here because this one you definitely want to turn up as well this is gratitude Beastie Boys right there with Gratitude. On the lead vocals and guitar, you got the King Ad Rock. On Distorted, Fuzzy Ass Bass, that is the late, great MCA. And on drums, you got Mike D, Michael Diamond. On organ right there, you got Mario C, the producer of that record and friend of the band. Move over to album number two here in that three-way tie for Best Album of 92. But I got it today at number two. This album came out February 25th, 1992, and it was and still is a motherfucker. I've talked about this album on multiple podcasts, not just Rock Strikes 10. Also talked about it on I Am Vinyl somewhat recently, and I've been on other shows to talk about it, claim a little bit of ownership on it just because it was recorded about 10 minutes from my house over in Pantego, Texas, so I think you know where I'm going with this. This album was produced by Terry Date, It was the band's sixth full-length album, but of course, the second album that most people would know, Vulgar Display of Power by Pantera. I've talked about this album, like I've said, endlessly. I'll just say a few things here. I remember specifically like seeing Skid Row live on the Slave to the Grind tour, and Pantera was the opening act, and they played about half of this record on that show. And the record hadn't even really been out a whole lot. So the first time a lot of us even heard those songs were in a live setting. And we were like, oh my God, this is going to be heavier than Cowboys from Hell? You're kidding. And it was. And I think, I don't know a whole lot of Pantera fans that would argue this. This is their best album. I, I don't really see how you could say that any other Pantera record is better than Vulgar Display of Power. So that's just my opinion, but that's how I have it. I've marveled constantly over the decades about how I've lived in a time where I remember the release and the the entire lifespan of a record like Master of Puppets becoming an essential metal record that everybody needs to own. It's in the top five metal records of all time consistently. But I've seen Vulgar Display of Power make those lists now at this point, and I can't argue against that. It's, there's no arguing. It's just a pure heavy metal record. It's one of the best song structure, lyrics, everything about it is biting and is edgy, and it's everything that heavy metal really should be for the most part, especially this kind of level of heaviness. A new level, if you will. So I, it's one of those, I could have played anything off of here. I've played fucking hostile on the show. I've played some other songs off of this, but I'm going to go with this one right here. This one doesn't get a ton of love, especially after you get hit over the head with the first half of this record, but it never lets up. I mean, I love the way this song just kicks in. They don't even fade out of this love. They just go right into this one right here. So let's play it on its own because this one, of course, once again, it's a motherfucker. So this is Pantera with Rise. that was rise by pantera from their best album vulgar display of power coming in at number two here on the top 80 albums of 1992 now it is time for the big one the granddaddy of them all at least for today best album of 1992 a lot of you out there can breathe a sigh yes this is the number one album I would say probably in kind of the same way that Slave to the Grind was overly anticipated as being my number one album of 91. I'm going to deliver for you once again with no peer pressure at all because it's also my legitimate favorite album right now of 1992. And that would be Angel Dust by Faith No More. Yes, Faith No More's fourth album. Their second with Mike Patton. It came out June 8th, 1992, produced by Matt Wallace and a massive evolution and sound and approach after the real thing and i love the real thing if i ever do a 1989 album list that will probably be number one i don't know but yeah i love the real thing i think it's almost like taken for granted at this point because angel dust is so good but yeah it's such a important record and i'm sure like if any band member of faith the more could hear any of us talking about how much we love this record they would probably all laugh in our faces because it was kind of seen as a failure, or at least a disappointment at the time. I think sales were down, and they they did that artistic follow-up, as we like to say. And I've heard, I've read countless articles about this record, and my favorite story by far is the one. I don't know who said it, but I'm been constantly fascinating i think i've mentioned this on some other shows about the table listen where you finish the album it's mixed down you got the cds printed up and now you go trot down to the record label everybody orders lunch and they have a little round table meeting they put the album on they discuss the album some potential singles what have you some ideas you know get the business side of things going which is not fun for a lot of people but it's a necessary evil especially at that point and apparently there was just a lot of silence it's one of those listens where the label is just kind of dumbfounded by what's being played on the stereo and according to one of the band members somebody kind of spoke up maybe even jokingly and said wow i hope you guys didn't buy any houses (laughs) so there you go there's that's almost kind of major labels in a nutshell (laughs) Like that kind of heartless weird out to lunch approach but yes angel dust is a high watermark in 90s records uh, records of any kind of hard rock stylings or alternative stylings and you could tell from the get-go that it's a different kind of feel of course obviously Patton was actually helping in the writing on this record so you hear the difference right then and there it's got a bigger wider more orchestral sound in a way but a lot of the music is still there, which is nice. I'm glad they didn't stray too far away from what made them great musically. So a lot of the funk elements are still in the music. But it's it's definitely a bigger sound. Oh, and by the way, fun fact here. I don't know if I've ever come correct with this on my show, but here's a little personable story about me. Woohoo here we go. So I know specifically from reading interviews with Mike Patton, he has consistently said this about the opening track on the album, Land of Sunshine. Land of Sunshine is mostly about televangelist Robert Tilton, who, if my grandparents had had it their way, that's my would-be dad right there. Robert Tilton is an old friend of the family, in a sense of my grandparents and Robert Tilton's parents were like besties. They were absolute best friends. And in their teenage years with their kids, uh, my mom Robert Tilton they tried like hell to matchmake them. According to my mom the chemistry wasn't there and c'est la vie. So I mean obviously that wouldn't even been me. Like those genetics are not going to make somebody like me. But there you go. Fun fact, I'm sharing this with you the loyal and few friends of the show of Rock Strikes 10 right here. Robert Tilton was an early suitor of my mom. <laughs> Love you ma. Thank you for not marrying Robert Tilton. Thank you for not marrying that absolute epic bastard. Just marrying a regular bastard would do fine and well enough to create someone like me. So it was worth it in the long run. (laughs) All right. Let's get back to Angel Dust by Faith No More. Wow, that was one of the ultimate sidebars in the history of the show ever, for sure. But hey, why not do it as we're talking about the number one album of such a big count down here in 1992. Getting back to Angel Dust right here. I consider this to be an absolute perfect song this is the crown jewel the absolute crowning achievement of this record for my money and it's almost towards the end of the record to me you got a peak in the middle of the album but this one track number 10 on the proper release so kind of befuddling but hey i still can't argue with it when i hear it in album order so they knew something that i didn't but yes my absolute favorite song on the record and one of my favorite songs of all time i'm going to use here to represent the number one album of 1992 and angel dust by faith no more this is a small victory Closing off the show here tonight and closing off our epic, epic journey down the road of 1992 after all the odds and ends and then all the top 80 albums of 1992. We finish up with Faith No More and their album Angel Dust. I think I made the right call. Let me know what you think. It's not wrong to have an opinion or any of those other two of the top three year tops or something else, maybe in number 15 or something. I don't know, but let me know. Yes, a Small Victory, one of the great songs of all time right there for my money. Love it. Saw them live for the one and only time so far, which is awful to say, but I saw them on this album as they were the opening band for the Guns N' Roses Metallica Stadium Tour. So I'm due for a headline show with them for sure. That's almost embarrassing to admit, but yeah, that's the only time I've seen them live. But they were still great, even though you could tell that they were just fighting the crowd. And Patton was definitely fighting that crowd. But it was was awesome. All right. So I hope you've enjoyed all these episodes. Come back to me in a few days after you get through the holidays and all that stuff. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday with whoever your most important people are in your life. I don't care if they're absolute family or if they're that real family that you know you can count on. Uh, I hope you have a great holiday season. I'll wish you a happy new year later on here because we got more shows to do before the ball drops because I got to knock out the absolute best stuff of 2002. We're going to get into all of that in this coming week. And then once the ball drops, we will get into present day, the best albums of 2022 or 2022, if you will. But until then, until all of that, to all a good night. Stay tuned for my better half, NOLA, with the plugs followed by the best damn outro song in all the podcasting business. Take it away, Noah.
2: We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cats Ruby and Ripley a treat. We are on Twitter at RockStrikes10 and the direct email is RockStrikes10 at gmail.com. Where cinema's trash is treated like treasure, and the I Am Vinyl podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. We also highly recommend that you check out our good friend Mark Striegel, who can now be heard exclusively on Sirius XM as part of Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation. Last, but certainly not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com spacebeardband Band to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun.